Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Hi, I'm Gina, and, well, Marie is away today. We are so happy. I am so happy you're here again. And if you're new to us, I'm really happy you're here for the first time. You picked a good episode. All of our stories are classics from award-winning authors, real literature, there's no droning on and on here, never a waste of your time. Our goal at Fast Asleep, you know this, will always be to take you away from your day and bury you deeply into a classic plot. Oh dear, that's a, um, <laughs> that sounds like a cemetery plot and I did not mean that. Sorry about that. Anyway, <clears throat> Remember, folks, to keep us here by commenting, reviewing, and subscribing, and thank you. Let's get into today's, today's episode. Well, like last week's author, H.G. Wells, this week we again bring you an English writer and journalist regarded as one of the leading novelists of the 20th century. His books are still selling better than many recently published works that, think about it, nowadays they get plenty of media coverage too. Many authors today, even the award winners, just kind of disappear into the past while Graham Greene endures and even thrives. According to Craig Nova of the newsletter Crime Reads, oh, an author of um, 14 novels himself. There are very valuable skills we can learn from Mr. Green's success, and authors especially take note. First, you've got to create a specific location for your story with enough details to make you believe you've actually been there. The reader. And next, your readers. You need to make those readers hungry to learn or to see something in your story. And then don't forget to satisfy that hunger. Make your reader feel that the two of you are in it together. And last, keep the details about the characters to a minimum, only dropping occasional bits of information so that your reader can discover and recognize their traits for themselves. And of course, make their own judgments, which is certainly true of today's story. Well, fortunately for us at Fast Asleep, Graham Greene, famous novelist, World War II spy, honest, check out earlier episodes for more information on that one. Oh, and briefly, an actor, um, a 1973 film he had a part in, uncredited, don't know the title, sorry. Anyway, Graham Greene loved a good thriller, and he wrote many in short story form. Oh, that is good for us, isn't it? Well, we've called upon him before with episode number 239, The Basement Room. I loved that one, and you did too. And episode 134, The End of the Party. Mm -hmm. I can safely say we will definitely be calling on him again. But for now, let's tuck in, everybody, for Graham Greene's a drive in the country. Mm -hmm. 
As every other night, she listened to her father going round the house, locking the doors and windows. He was head clerk at Bergson's export agency. And lying in bed, she would think with dislike that his home was like his office, run on the same lines, its safety preserved with the same meticulous care, so that he could present a faithful steward's account to the managing director. Regularly every Sunday he presented the account, accompanied by his wife and two daughters in the little neo-Gothic church in Park Road. They always had the same pew. They were always five minutes early, and her father sang loudly with no sense of tune, holding an outsized prayer book on the level of his eyes, singing songs of exultation. He was presenting the week's account. One household, duly safeguarded, marching to the promised land. When they came out of church, she looked carefully away from the corner by the bricklayer's arms, where Fred always stood, a little lit, because the arms had been open for half an hour, with his air of unbalanced exultation. She listened. The back door closed. She heard the catch of the kitchen window click and the restless pad of his feet going back to try the front door. It wasn't only the outside doors he locked. He locked the empty rooms, the bathroom, the lavatory. He was locking something out, but obviously it was something capable of penetrating his first defenses. He raised his second line all the way up to bed. She laid her ear against the thin wall of the jerry-built villa and could hear the faint voices from the neighboring room. As she listened, they came clearer, as though she were turning the screw of a wireless set. Her mother said, Marjorie in the cooking, and her father said, Much easier in fifteen years. And then the bed creaked, and there were dim sounds of tenderness and comfort between the two middle-aged strangers in the next room. In fifteen years, she thought unhappily, the house will be his. Well, he had paid twenty-five pounds down, and the rest he was paying month by month as rent. Of course, he was in the habit of saying after a good meal, I've improved the property. And he expected at least one of them to follow him into his study. I've wired this room for power. He padded back past the little downstairs lavatory. This radiator. The final stroke of satisfaction? The garden. 
and if it was a fine evening, he would fling the French window of the dining room open on the little carpet of grass, as carefully kept as a college lawn. A pile of bricks, he'd say. That's all it was. Five years of Saturday afternoons and fine Sundays had gone into that patch of turf, the surrounding flower bed, and the one apple tree which regularly produced one crimson, tasteless apple more each year. Yes, he said. I've improved the property. Looking round for a nail to drive in, a weed to be uprooted. If we had to sell now, we should get more than I've paid back from the society. It was more than a sense of property. It was a sense of honesty. Some people who bought their houses through the society let them go to rack and ruin, and then cleared out. She stood with her ear against the wall, a small, dark, furious, immature figure. There was no more to be heard from the other room, but in her inner ear she still heard the chorus of a property owner, the tap-tap of a hammer, the scrape of a spade, the whistle of a radiator steam, a key turning, a bolt pushed home, the little trivial sounds of men building barricades. She stood planning her treachery. It was a quarter past ten. She had an hour in which to leave the house, but it did not take so long. There was really nothing to fear. They had played their usual rubber of three-handed bridge, while her sister altered a dress for the local hop next night. After the rubber, she had boiled a kettle and brought in a pot of tea. Then she had filled the hot water bottles and put them in the beds while her father locked up. He had no idea whatever that she was an enemy. She put on a hat and a heavy coat because it was still cold at night. The spring was late that year, as her father commented, watching for the buds on the apple tree. She didn't pack a suitcase. That would have reminded her too much of weekends at the sea, a family expedition to Ostend, from all of which one returned. She wanted to match the odd, reckless quality of Fred's mind. This time, she wasn't going to return. She went softly downstairs into the little crowded hall, unlocked the door. All was quiet upstairs, and she closed the door behind her. She was touched by a faint feeling of guilt because she couldn't lock it from the outside. But 
It had vanished by the time she reached the end of the crazy paved path and turned to the left down the road, which after five years was still half made, past the gaps between the villas where the wounded fields remained grimly alive in the form of thin grass and heaps of clay and dandelions. She walked fast, passing a long line of little garages like the graves in a Portuguese cemetery where the coffin lies forever below the fading photograph of its occupant. The cold night air touched her with exhilaration. She was ready for anything as she turned by the Belisha Beacon, a light to guide vehicles, into the shuttered shopping street. She was like a recruit in the first months of a war. The choice made, she could surrender her will to the strange, the exhilarating, the gigantic event. Fred, as he had promised, was at the corner where the road turned down towards the church. She could taste the spirit on his lips as they kissed, and she was satisfied that no one else could have so adequately matched the occasion. His face was bright and reckless in the lamplight. Oh, he was as exciting and strange to her as the adventure. He took her arm and ran her into a blind, unlighted alley, then left her for a moment until two headlamps beamed softly at her out of the cavern. She cried with astonishment, You've got a car? and felt the jerk of his nervous hand urging her towards it. Yes, he said. Do you like it? Grinding into second gear, changing clumsily into top as they came out between the shuttered windows. She said, It's lovely. Let's drive a long way. We will, he said, watching the speedometer needle go quivering to 45. Does it mean you've got a job? There are no jobs, he said. They don't exist any more than the dodo. Oh, did, did you see that bird? He asked sharply turning his headlights full on as they passed the turning to the housing estate and quite suddenly came out into the country between a cafe, draw in here, a boot shop, buy the shoes worn by your favorite film star and an undertaker's with a large white angel lit by a neon light. I didn't see any bird. Not flying at the windscreen? No. Oh, I nearly hit it, he said. Oh, it would have made a mess. Bad as those fellows who run someone down and don't stop. Should we stop? He asked, turning out his switchboard light so that they couldn't see the needle vibrate downwards to 60. Whatever you say, she said, sitting deep in a reckless dream. You going to love me tonight? Of course I am. Never going back there. No, she said, abjuring the tap of hammer, the click of latch, the pad of slippered feet 
making the rounds. Want to know where we're going? No. A little flat cardboard copse ran forward into the green light and darkly by. A rabbit turned its scut and vanished into a hedge, he said. Have you any money? Mm, half a crown. Do you love me? For a long time, she expended on his lips all she had patiently had to keep in reserve, looking the other way on Sunday mornings, saying nothing when his name came up at meals with disapproval. She expended herself against dry, unresponsive lips as the car leapt ahead and his foot trod down on the accelerator. He said, It's the hell of a life. She echoed him, The hell of a life. He said, There's a bottle in my pocket. Have a drink. No, oh, I don't want one. Give me one, then. It has a screw top. And with one hand on her and one on the wheel, he tipped his head so that she could pour a little whiskey into his mouth out of the quarter bottle. Do you mind? He said. Of course I don't mind. <sighs> you can't save, he said, on ten shillings a week pocket money. I lay it out the best I can. It needs a hell of a lot of thought to give variety. Half a crown on weights, three and six on whiskey, a shilling on the pictures, and that leaves three shillings for beer. I can take my fun once a week and get it over. The whiskey had dribbled onto his tie, and the smell filled the small coupé. It pleased her. It was his smell, he said. They grudge at me. They think I ought to get a job. Ugh. When you're that age, you don't realize there aren't any jobs for some of us anymore, forever. I know, she said. They are old. How's your sister? He asked abruptly. The bright glare swept the road ahead of them, clean of small scurrying birds and animals. Oh, she's going to the hop tomorrow. I wonder where we shall be. He wouldn't be drawn. He had his own idea and kept it to himself. I'm loving this, he said. You know, there's a club out this way, a roadhouse. Mick made me a member. Do you know Mick? No. Mick's all right. If they know you, they'll serve you drinks till midnight. We'll look in there, say hello to Mick, and then in the morning, we'll decide that later, when we've had a few drinks. Have you the money? A small village a village fast asleep already behind closed doors and windows, sailed down the hill towards them as if it were being carried smoothly by a landslide into the scarred plain from which they'd come. A long, gray, Norman church, an inn without a sign, a clock striking eleven. He said, Look in the back. There's a suitcase there. Oh, it's locked. Mm, I forgot the key he said. Well, what's in it? A few things, he said vaguely. We could pop them for drinks. Hmm. What about a bed? There's the car, 
You aren't scared, are you? No, she said. I'm not scared. This is... But she hadn't the words. For the damp, cold wind, the darkness, the strangeness, the smell of whiskey, and the rushing car. Mm, it moves, she said. We must have gone a long way already. Oh, this is real country. Seeing an owl sweep low on furry wings over a plowed field. Ah, uh, you've got to go farther than this for real country, he said. You won't find it yet on this road. We'll be at the roadhouse soon. She discovered in herself a nostalgia for their dark, windy, solitary progress. She said, Need we go to the club? Can't we go farther into the country? He looked sideways at her. He had always been open to any suggestion, like some meteorological instrument. He was only made for the winds to blow through. Of course, he said, anything you like. He didn't give the club a second thought. They swept past it. A moment later, a long-lit Tudor bungalow, a crash of voices, a bathing pool filled, for some reason, with hay. It was immediately behind them, a patch of light whipping round a corner out of sight. He said, Well, I suppose this is country now. They, none of them, get farther than the club. We're quite alone now. We could lie in these fields till doomsday as far as they're concerned. Though, I suppose a plowman, if they do plow here, he raised his foot from the accelerator and let the car's speed gradually diminish. Somebody had left a wooden gate open into a field, and he turned the car in. They jolted a long way down the field beside the hedge and came to a standstill. He turned out the headlamps, and they sat in the tiny glow of the switchboard light. Peaceful, he said, uneasily, and they heard a screech owl hunting overhead and a small rustle in the hedge where something went to hiding. They belonged to the city. They hadn't a name for anything round them. The tiny buds breaking in the bushes were nameless. He nodded at a group of dark trees at the hedge end. Oaks? Elms? she asked, and their mouths went together in a mutual ignorance. The touch excited her. Oh, she was ready for the most reckless act. But from his mouth, the dry, spiritous lips, she gained a sense that he was less excited than he had hoped to be. She said, to reassure herself, Ah, it's good to be here, miles away from anyone we know. Well, I dare say Mick's there, down the road. Does he know? Nobody knows. She said, that's how I wanted it. How did you get this car? He grinned at her with wild, unbalanced amusement. Oh, 
I saved from the ten shillings. No, but how? Did someone lend it to you? Mm, yes, he said. He suddenly pushed the door open and said, Let's take a walk. We've never walked in the country before. She took his arm, and she could feel the tense nerves responding to her touch. It was what she liked. She couldn't tell what he would do next. She said, My father calls you crazy. I like you crazy. Hmm, what's all this stuff? Kicking at the ground. Hmm, clover, he said. Isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. It was like being in a foreign city where you can't understand the names on shops, the traffic signs, nothing to catch hold of, to hold you down to this and that, just adrift together in a dark vacuum. Shouldn't you turn on the headlamps? She said. It won't be so easy finding our way back. There's not much moon. Already they seemed to have gone a long way from the car. She couldn't see it clearly anymore. Uh, we'll find our way, he said. Somehow. Don't worry. At the hedge end, they came to the trees. He pulled a twig down and felt the sticky buds. Uh, what is it? Beach? I don't know, he said. If it had been warmer, we could have slept out here. You'd think we might have had that much luck. Tonight, of all nights. But it's cold and it's going to rain. Well, let's come in the summer. But he didn't answer. Some other wind had blown. She could tell it. And already he had lost interest in her. There was something hard in his pocket. It hurt her side. She put her hand in. The metal chamber had absorbed all the cold there had been in the windy ride. She whispered fearfully, Why are you carrying that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. There was something hard in his pocket. It hurt her side. She put her hand in. The metal chamber had absorbed all the cold there had been in the windy ride. She whispered fearfully, Why are you carrying that? She had always before drawn a line round his recklessness. When her father had said he was crazy, she had secretly and possessively smiled because she thought she knew the extent of his craziness. Now, 
while she waited for him to answer her, she could feel his craziness go on and on and out of her reach, out of her sight. She couldn't see where it ended. It had no end. She couldn't possess it any more than she could, could possess a darkness or a desert. Don't be scared, he said. Ah, I didn't mean you to find that tonight. He suddenly became more tender than he had ever been. He put his hand on her breast. It came from his fingers, a great, soft, meaningless flood of tenderness. He said, Don't you see? Life's hell. There's nothing we can do. He spoke very gently, but she had never been more aware of his recklessness. He was open to every wind, but the wind now seemed to have set from the east. It blew like sleet through his words. I haven't a penny, he said. We can't live on nothing. It's no good hoping that I'll get a job, he repeated. There aren't any more jobs, any more. And every year, you know, there's less chance because there aren't, there are more people younger than I am. But why, she said, have we come? He became softly and tenderly lucid. We do love each other, don't we? We can't live without each other. It's no good hanging around, is it? Waiting for our luck to change. Uh, we don't even get a fine night, he said, feeling for rain with his hand. We can have a good time tonight in the car, and then in the morning. No. No, she said. She tried to get away from him. I couldn't. It's horrible. I never said, ah, oh, you wouldn't know anything, he said gently, inexorably. Her words, she could realize now, had never made any real impression. He was swayed by them, but no more than he was swayed by anything now that the wind had set. It was like throwing scraps of paper towards the sky to speak at all or to argue, he said. Of course, we neither of us believe in God, but there may be a chance, and it's company going together like that. He added with pleasure, it's a gamble. And she remembered more occasions than she could count when their last coppers had gone ringing down in slot machines. He pulled her closer and said, with complete assurance, We love each other. It's the only way, you know. You can trust me. He was like a skilled logician. He knew all the stages of the argument. She despaired at catching him out on any point, but the promise, we love each other, that she doubted. For the first time, faced by the mercilessness of his egotism, he repeated, It will be company. She said, 
There must be some way. Why must? Otherwise, people would be doing it all the time, everywhere. They are, he said triumphantly, as if it were more important for him to find his argument flawless than to find, well, a way, a way to go on living. You've only got to read the papers, he said. He whispered gently, endearingly, as if he thought the very sound of the words tender enough to dispel all fear. They call it a suicide pact. It's happening all the time. I couldn't. I haven't the nerve. Oh, you needn't do anything, he said. I'll do it all. His calmness horrified her. You mean you'd kill me? He said, I love you enough for that. I promise it won't hurt you. He might have been persuading her to play some trivial and uncongenial game. We shall be together always. He added rationally, of course, if there is an always. And suddenly she saw his love as a mere flicker of gas flame playing on the marshy depth of his irresponsibility. She had loved his irresponsibility, but now she realized that it was without any limit at all. It closed over the head. She pleaded, There are things we can sell. That suitcase... She knew that he was watching her with amusement, that he had rehearsed all her arguments and had an answer. He was only pretending to take her seriously. Uh, we might get 15 shillings, he said. We could live a day on that, but we shouldn't have much fun. The things inside it? Mm, that's another gamble. They might be worth 30 shillings, three days. <laughs> that would give us, with economy... We might get a job. I've been trying for a good many years now. Isn't there the dole? I'm not an insured worker. I'm one of the ruling class. Your people, they'd give us something. Ah, uh, but we've got our pride, haven't we? He said with remorseless conceit. The man who lent you the car, he said. You remember Cortez? The fellow who burnt his boats? Well, I've burnt mine. <laughs> I've got to kill myself. You see, I stole that car. We'd be stopped in the next town. It's too late, even to go back. And he laughed. He had reached the climax of his argument, and there was nothing more to dispute about. She could tell that he was perfectly satisfied and perfectly happy. It infuriated her. You've got to, maybe, but I haven't. Why should I kill myself? And what right have you? She dragged herself away from him and felt against the back. She had backed into a massive trunk of the living tree. 
Oh, he said in an irritated tone. Of course, you'd like to go on without me. She had admired his conceit. She had always carried his unemployment with a manner now. You could no longer call it conceit. It was a complete lack of any values. You can go home, he said, <laughs> though I don't know quite how. I can't drive you back because I'm staying here. You'll be able to go to the hop tomorrow night. Oh, and there's a whist drive. Again, social. Isn't there? In the church hall. Well, my dear, I wish you joy of home. There was a savagery in his manner. He took security, peace, order in his teeth and worried them so that she couldn't help feeling a little pity for what they had joined in, despising. A hammer tapped at her heart, driving in a nail here and a nail there. She tried to think of a bitter retort, for after all, there was something to be said for the negative virtues of doing no injury, of simply going on as her father was going on for another 15 years. But the next moment, she felt no anger. They had trapped each other. He had always wanted this, the dark field, the weapon in his pocket, the escape, and the gamble. And she, less honestly, had wanted a little of both worlds, irresponsibility and a safe love, danger and a secure heart, he said. I'm going now. Are you coming? No, she said. He hesitated. The recklessness for a moment wavered. A sense of something lost and bewildered came to her through the dark. She wanted to say, don't be a fool. Leave the car where it is. Walk back with me and we'll get a lift home. But she knew any thought of hers had occurred to him and been answered already. Ten shillings a week, no job, getting older. Endurance was a virtue of one's father's. He suddenly began to walk fast down the hedge. He couldn't see where he was going. He stumbled on a route, and she heard him swear. Damnation! The little commonplace sound in the darkness overwhelmed her with pain and horror. She cried out, Fred, Fred, don't do it, and began to run in the opposite direction. She couldn't stop him, and she wanted to be out of hearing. A twig broke under her foot like a shot, and the owl screamed across the plowed field beyond the hedge. 
It was like a rehearsal with sound effects, but when the real shot came, it was quite different. A thud, like a gloved hand striking a door, and no cry at all. She didn't notice it at first, and afterwards she thought that she had never been conscious of the exact moment when her lover ceased to exist. She bruised herself against the car, running blindly. A blue-spotted Woolworth handkerchief lay on the seat in the light of the switchboard bulb. She nearly took it, but no, she thought, no one must know that I've been here. She turned out the light and picked her way as quietly as she could across the clover. She could begin to be sorry when she was safe. She wanted to close a door behind her, thrust a bolt down, hear the catch grip. It wasn't ten minutes walk down the deserted lane to the roadhouse. Tipsy voices spoke a foreign language, though it was the language Fred had spoken. She could hear the clink of coins in slot machines, the hiss of soda. She listened to these sounds like an enemy planning her escape. They frightened her like something mindless. There was no appeal one could make to that egotism. It was simply a want to be satisfied. It gaped at her like a mouth. A man was trying to wind up his car. The self-starter wouldn't work. He said, I'm a bullshi. Of course I'm a bullshi. I believe a thin girl with red hair sat on the step and watched him. You're all wrong, she said. I'm a liberal conservative. No, you can't be a liberal conservative. Do you love me? I love Joe. Oh, you can't love Joe. Let's go home, Mick. The man tried to wind up the car again, and she came up to them as if she'd come out of the club and said, Give me a lift. Course, delighted. Get in. Won't the car go? No. Have you flooded? Oh, now that's an idea. He lifted the bonnet, and she pressed the self-starter. It began to rain, slowly and heavily and drenchingly, the kind of rain you always expect to fall on graves. And her thoughts went down the lane towards the field, the hedge, the trees. Oak, beech, elm. She imagined the rain on his face, the pool collecting in each eye socket and streaming down on either side of the nose. But she could feel nothing but gladness because she had escaped from him. 
Where are you going? She said. Devises. I thought you might be going to London. Well, where do you want to go? Um, Golding's Park? Well, let's go to Golding's Park. The red-haired girl said, I'm going in, Mick. It's raining. Aren't you coming? I'm going to find Joe. All right. He smashed his way out of the little car park, bending his mudguard on a wooden post, scraping the paint of another car. Um, that's the wrong way, she said. I will turn. He backed the car into a ditch and out again. Oh, it was a good party, he said. The rain came down harder. It blinded the windscreen, and the electric wiper wouldn't work. But her companion didn't care. He drove straight on at 40 miles an hour. It was an old car. It wouldn't do anymore. It leaked through the hood. He said, Twist that knob. Let's have a tune. And when she turned it and the dance music came through, he said, Ah, that's Harry Roy. Know him anywhere. Driving into the thick, wet night, carrying the hot music with them. Presently, he said, Friend of mine, one of the best. You'd, you'd know him, Peter Weatherall. You know him. No. Oh, you must know Peter. Haven't seen him about lately. Goes off on the drink for weeks. They sent out an SOS for Peter once, in the middle of the dance music. Missing from home. We were in the car. We had a laugh about that. <laughs> she said, Is that what people do? When people are missing? You know this tune, he said. Now this isn't Harry Roy. This is Alf Cohen. She said suddenly, You're Mick, aren't you? Wouldn't you lend... Oh, he sobered up. Oh, stony broke, he said. Comrades in misfortune. Now, you could try Peter. And why do you want to go to Golding's Park? My home. Oh, you mean you live there? Yes, she said. Oh, be careful. There's a speed limit here. He was perfectly obedient. He raised his foot and let the car crawl at 15 miles an hour. The lamp standards marched unsteadily to meet them and lit his face. He was quite old, 40 if a day, 10 years older than Fred. He wore a striped tie and she could see his sleeve was frayed. He had more than 10 shillings a week, but perhaps not so very much more. His hair was going thin. You can drop me here, she said. He stopped the car and she got out and the rain went on. He followed her onto the road. Let me come in, he said. She shook her head. The rain wetted them through. Behind her was the pillar box, the Belisha beacon, the road through the housing estate. Hell of a life he said politely, holding her hand while the rain drummed on the hood of the cheap car and ran down his face, across his collar and the school tie. But she felt no pity 
no attraction, only a faint horror and repulsion. A kind of dim recklessness gleamed in his wet eye as the hot music of Alf Cohen's band streamed from the car. A faded irresponsibility. Ah, let's go back, he said. Let's go somewhere. Go for a ride in the country. Let's go to Maidenhead. Holding her hand, limply. She pulled it away. He didn't resist and walked down the half-made road to number 64. The crazy paving in the front garden seemed to hold her feet firmly up. She opened the door and heard through the dark and the rain a car grind into second gear and drone away. Certainly not towards Maidenhead or Devizes or the country. Another wind must have blown. Her father called down from the first landing. Who's there? It's me, she said. She explained. I had a feeling you'd left the door unbolted. And had I? No, she said gently. It's bolted all right, driving the bolt softly and firmly home. She waited till his door closed. She touched the radiator to warm her fingers. He had put it in himself. He had improved the property. In 15 years, she thought, it will be ours. She was quite free from pain, listening to the rain on the roof. He had been over the whole roof that winter, inch by inch. There was nowhere for the rain to enter. It was kept outside, drumming on the shabby hood hitting the clover field. She stood by the door, feeling only the faint repulsion she always had for things weak and crippled, thinking, it isn't tragic at all, and looking down with an emotion like tenderness at the flimsy bolt from a sixpenny store any man could have broken, but which a man had put in. The head clerk of Bergson's.
Our introduction information for this episode came from Rock of Ages, What Graham Greene Can Teach the Modern Novelist, by Craig Nova for the newsletter Crime Reads, and from other sources available in our show notes. Our music today is, oh, and here comes the pronunciation, Elegy, Elegy. Opus 24 by Gabriel Foray with Nadaj, Rowe, Shaw, Ancello, and Malgorzta Garska on piano. And background music, Nordoris Wayai by Johan Fame. And Is This Nature by Catherine and other sources in our show notes. You can always reach me at fastasleepwithginamarie44 at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And please, keep us here for you as you comment, like, and subscribe. I thank you for listening. Good night. Thank you.